Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson-Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. We're trying something new in the new year. We've started a podcast focused on the research, advocacy, and policies impacting public school superintendents. This will include superintendents, researchers, advocates, policymakers, and other folks doing interesting things in the field. If we do it right, with each episode, you'll learn something new and hopefully come away thinking about some of these issues in a new light. Each episode will be a new topic from a different angle. We'll talk federal, state, and local policies impacting superintendents in public education. We'll talk advocacy. We'll bring in folks to discuss new and interesting research and emerging trends in the field and any other topic we think you might want to hear about. If you have a show idea or a guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note, nellerson at aasa.org or on Twitter at noellerson. All shows will be available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Our first show, which you'll hear next, is with my colleague, Sasha Podelsky. She serves as our advocacy director, and Sasha and I are starting the new year in the new Congress with a yet-to-be-hired third colleague, taking over for Leslie Finnan, who moved on to a new job. If you've been engaged with AASA advocacy in the past few years, you've heard from Sasha. She spearheads our voucher work, our Perkins career and technical education work, and our Medicaid work, among others. And her contributions and leadership in these areas are undeniable from the successful effort to defeat a proposal to make impact aid a voucher program to an effort to preserve funding for Medicaid reimbursement in schools. I truly enjoy working alongside Sasha, and I thought one of the best ways to kick off a new podcast in a new year with a new Congress is with a conversation between me and Sasha on what we think could be coming down the pike. I really enjoyed this conversation as an opportunity to walk through what our opportunities and obstacles are, and the opportunity to consider how our work supports superintendents. I hope you find it interesting and will be inspired to submit future guests or topics. Thanks for listening. Sasha Podelsky is AASA's Advocacy Director. She joined AASA in 2010 and handles myriad topics in our legislative portfolio, including special education, career and technical education, vouchers, Medicaid and school safety, among others. Sasha, thank you very much for joining me today and being willing to be on the podcast, especially since we just had snurlow and we are officially on a snow day. So thank you again for being able to participate. <laughs> of course. Okay, so I absolutely sent these questions to Sasha ahead of time so we can have a little bit of an ability to prep. So I'm just going to dig right in. Last Congress was without a doubt a whirlwind. From your perspective, Sasha, because your portfolio was the one that had a lot of substance and activity, what were your top three moments, good, bad, or otherwise? Well, uh, at the top of my list was definitely the brutal fight to save the Medicaid in Schools program and the Medicaid program generally. Uh, the way our members engaged across the Hill over many months and had some tough conversations with representatives and senators about the importance of this program was noticed by all. I still get folks commenting to me, either from the healthcare advocacy world or from the Hill, about how they just had no idea school district leaders cared so much about the Medicaid program and the desire on the part of our members to meet the healthcare needs of children in their buildings. 
especially if it's the only place that those healthcare needs can be addressed. And as a result of our efforts, we educated a lot of people, including the media, about why the fourth largest funding stream for school districts is so important and how it's impossible to have educational equity without healthcare equity for our kids too. The second piece of the new of, of last Congress that really comes to mind is probably the fight to save the impact aid program from being voucherized, as, as you kind of alluded to earlier. All the cards were stacked against us. We had a gung-ho pro-voucher administration, of course. We had Republicans in control of both chambers, and we had over 75 Republicans in the House uh, supporting this bill. And we had the largest, most powerful political action committee, the Heritage Foundation, putting all of its resources into pressuring the Hill to move this bill as part of a non-education related must pass measure, which was the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, and thanks to the work that we lead as part of the National Coalition for Public Education, AASA, along with many education groups, civil rights groups, disability groups, religious groups, and of course, military-affiliated organizations, chief among them the National Association of Federally Impacted Schools, used our collective reach and every argument we could possibly think of to shut down this proposal. And it was an absolute nail-biter, but we did it. Uh, and I think the third thing that comes to mind was, was not a win for AESA, but an important political lesson, nevertheless. It was the reauthorization this past summer of the Perkins Career and Technical Education Act, the CTE Act. And we've been working with the House for a number of years on a bipartisan bill that passed in two consecutive Congresses to authorize Perkins. And we felt it was an excellent work product and really achieved our main priorities for reauthorization. But alas, the Senate had other ideas and a host of political pressure put on them by the White House. And because of the enormous political pressure applied by the White House and by the business community, the Senate moved really quickly on the proposal without the kind of consultation we've really come to expect from that chamber and passed what I consider to be a sloppy, less effective piece of legislation that could actually in some ways be worse than current law. And despite the lobbying by our members, the politics and the time crunch to get this over the finish line in a matter of six weeks start to finish was just too much. Uh, and it was definitely a lesson for me in trying to keep up with some more of the backroom deal-making side of lawmaking um, and just not to assume that good policy will trump politics these days. And it was a huge year. Those were probably the three biggest things you worked on, too. But really, what really strikes me in those responses is as much as they were all consuming at the staff level for us at AASA and with other associations, those issues weren't the ones necessarily drumming up all the headlines or attention. I mean, when people think about the narrative that drove last Congress, they would think about it as the first Congress on the Trump administration, then it was the uh, gear up to the midterm election or the hearings for Supreme Courts. And it's just so funny to think about how all consuming it was to us and then how that for was portrayed or not portrayed in the general media. But I, I do think one of the important things to highlight from your Medicaid effort was when you think back to the effort to preserve Medicaid, the overwhelming nature in which the face of students and kids needing Medicaid really did help push back on that effort. And if, if one of the three got a lot of national attention, it was the Medicaid and schools. And that was really awesome to see the growth in both Congress and the media in understanding and talking about that. 
and we hope to do more with that this year. I mean, I think it, it's only natural for us to to try to continue to educate and continue to advocate for the Medicaid in Schools program, given the positive attention that we received. So hope more on that later, but um, it, it's definitely something that, that, that has resonated very well on the Hill and, and that we want to capitalize on in the future. Yeah. So when we talk about your portfolio, you're the director of advocacy. That, that is your title. Your title includes the word advocacy, but the right. title of our department is policy and advocacy. So my next question is something that covers a little bit more of my work and a lot of what has been Leslie's work. But we do research in our department, and our research seems to have two roles. We have member supporting and advocacy supporting. So in the member supporting category, we're talking about work products like the annual superintendent salary survey or the decennial superintendent pipeline survey. And then in advocacy supporting, we're talking about things like your Medicaid study or the report we did two years ago on six ways federal education policy has supported rural education and things like that. And sometimes our research overlaps. How would you point to the role that our policy research has helped support AASA advocacy? Well, I think our research continues to enable us to have a credible impact on the policymaking happening on the Hill. And while I can certainly appreciate our members can feel a little bombarded sometimes by requests for information from us or by surveys, um, they hopefully know that we're always putting the data they provide to good use. And whether it's finding out the impact of the school discipline guidance in schools or providing us with insights about what they hope the School Safety Commission should or should not work on, or sharing the impact of the teacher shortage and the need to have it addressed in the Higher Education Act reauthorization. We really do use everything we get to bolster our positions and relationships on the Hill. And being able to reflect the view of the field, I think sets us apart from a lot of organizations that just maybe have one entity that may decide a position. Um, and, and we have our board, of course, which sets our legislative agenda, but we also get to hear and we get to disaggregate information from so many other school leaders on specific policy issues that provide rich, nuanced feedback on the discussions that are happening frequently in real time on Capitol Hill. And I think that's why, in addition to the Hill relying on us, um, we get so many media inquiries as well. You know, people are are always asking, what are you hearing from the field about this? Um, and while we travel a lot, certainly, and we get that perspective on the ground, sometimes being able to point to a document and say, you know, this is what we heard from superintendents in Alabama about the Medicaid program, or this is what we heard um, from superintendents in rural areas about the teacher shortage. I mean, that is, that is really um, helpful to our advocacy and, and also makes us, you know, better advocates in, in having positions that speak uh, to, to a broader audience as well as at times uh, to more a narrow slice uh, of the country and uh, of communities uh, and both work in our favor on Capitol Hill. And I think it's something that's so centric to our advocacy. You talked about being member specific, but also a little bit broader. It also clarifies how member centric our advocacy is. So this is a question I didn't throw to you, but I'm pretty sure you'll nail it. What does it mean to have advocacy that is 100% member driven? So for those who are tuning into ASA advocacy for the first time and to everyone who's hearing this first podcast for the first time, what is the process here at AASA for our advocacy that makes us uniquely so member centric? 
the process is that uh, in January, we just had this happen last week. As a matter of fact, we have our executive committee uh, that's elected by their peers uh, from our larger board, which is the governing board, uh, which is about, I think, 120 superintendents around the country, again, selected by their peers. Uh, we, have our, our, we have our executive committee come to town, and they hear from folks on Capitol Hill. They hear from advocates. They get a, a, a landscape um, of, of what is going to be happening uh, this year, this Congress, uh, in terms of bills that may come up, issues to weigh in on. Uh, some of them are, you know, are, are ones that we always uh, know will arise, like funding and appropriations. Others can be more hot-button issues. Uh, and they set forward our priorities as an organization. Uh, they, 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 they discuss among themselves after, you know, hearing from experts in the field, experts on Capitol Hill, I should say, not in the field necessarily, but um, policy, policy folks, advocates, um, and of course, you know, Noelle and I, um, you know, what they think that uh, they want us to, to really emphasize this year in our legislative agenda, what positions they want us to take, and then once they make that recommendation in January, when we have our national conference in education in February, we have our governing board meet again, and then each region of our governing board has an opportunity to review the legislative agenda, make amendments to the legislative agenda, um, and finally, you know, pass the legislative agenda eventually that uh, that could be identical to what the executive committee has has uh, set forth, or it could be slightly different. Um, and as a result of that, Noelle and I have our marching orders. We know the positions we can and cannot take. Um, it's basically, you know, the lanes that we have to stay within. And of course, sometimes there's gray area. And if we're not sure about the gray area, we can always reach out again for feedback and information from either the executive committee and governing board or from the larger population of superintendents who are, who are members. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, super helpful to us and, and it allows us to tell the Hill, you know, these are not things that we're coming up with willy-nilly. This is direct from the field. Here are our marching orders. This is the document that's living that, um, that, that tells us um, where we can and cannot go on certain issues. Um, and I think that makes us, again, a more credible organization uh, compared to some other groups that, again, may just be having a lot of staff discretion determine where they may or not may not be, and as a result, be more politically sensitive to some topics, um, be more likely to, to, to come to pressure from a specific party on the Hill to take a position one way or the other. We, we have no issues um, saying, you know, sorry, we love working with you guys, but whoever that may be, Democrats, Republicans, depending on the issue, but, you know, we just can't go there, and, and it's not up to us. It's, it's the, the legislative agenda that's set by our, by our board and our membership. So, um, it's, it's a very helpful, useful way for us to, to ensure that we're an independent, nonpartisan entity on Capitol Hill and are really member-driven. I totally expected that answer because that's the reality of our policy. But when you hear it articulated in such a long format in terms of how deliberate and purposeful and how many iterations it takes, I mean, the executive committee has a day full of meetings and then they draft an agenda. And then it's brought to the full governing board, which is a group of more than 100 people, and it's debated in seven regional forums, subject to revision. As a staff member, we have no way of predicting what may or may not happen in February. And it's exciting to see it work because it's the ultimate demonstration of being member-centric. It can be changed on the, through the process, but also on the, the turn of a dime, and we'll have to see what that looks like. 
Now, everything you've talked about has consistently referenced other organizations or other structures. But before we get talking about how we may work with other organizations, I think it's really important to step out a little bit of our just little cocoon of our department because everything we've talked about so far is isolated solely in AASA's policy and advocacy department. And one good way to really highlight the way that our department plays with the other departments at AASA is through two of our recent national campaigns. So in 2017-18, we had the Love Public Education campaign. And right now in the 18-19 school year, we're in the Leaders Matter campaign. And I just wanted you and me to talk through the ways that our efforts or our department has folded into these two campaigns. And I think one of the funniest anecdotes is actually when it comes to that love public education campaign, it premised on the idea or started from a conversation that you, Leslie, and I had. We had all acquired t-shirts from a similar concept. I think it said love public schools. And we went to Dan because we liked this and thought love public education was awesome. And from that, it became a campaign. But being awesome and being a campaign are two different things. And we had different roles that we played. So I know I have some thoughts on what we've done, but did you have anything you wanted to add about the way the advocacy department contributed to either the Love Public Education or the Leaders Matter campaign? Uh, the only thing I'll say is it's just one, these campaigns are, are just one more way for us to highlight the work that our members do in addition to their job of fronting school systems um, as advocates for children in their community. Uh, and and in, in my mind, you know, whether it's coming to D.C. to testify at a briefing or a hearing or making a call to an elected official who lives in their district about something happening, you know, our folks are always willing to carve out the time uh, to advocate for public education, and I think the results speak for themselves. And uh, whether it's through the, through the Love Public Education campaign or the Leaders Matter campaign, it's just an, another way for us to showcase uh, both of those, uh, you know, issues in the advocacy realm. Whether that's whether the fact that it's our members really loving public education, or that they, that their leadership really does matter when it comes to to determining what happens at the state or federal level. So that's all I have to say about it. One thing that I would add that you should totally take credit for, though, is it wasn't necessarily done under the guise of Love Public Education, but it did ultimately fold into the campaign. Why don't you tell everyone what you started last year in terms of a public schools week and why that was so unique and unprecedented? Last year, uh, we decided, uh, as, as AASA, uh, along with some of our friends in the, in the education community, um, that we needed to really do more to push back against some of the activity on Capitol Hill that was very pro-privatization. Uh, one of the big efforts that happens every year, um, and it's extremely well-funded and well-organized, is School Choice Week. It's usually uh, the last week of January. And um, again, given given the fact that there was a sensitivity among uh, you know our membership as well as uh, I think the education community largely um, that public schools were under attack, I kind of had this thought that you know wouldn't it be nice instead of always being on the defensive uh, constantly uh, in these conversations for us to be really putting forward a positive message about the value of public schools and, and, and how awesome they were and invite our champions on Capitol Hill to have a, 
have an opportunity to talk about how much they love public schools and how how public schools are so important to them and their constituents. Uh, and so we very quickly kind of created this uh, this website um, and uh, and and this idea of Public Schools Week. Uh, and work with it, work with our friends, Democrats and Republicans. It was very important for us. This would be an absolutely bipartisan event because School Choice Week is, is almost exclusively, I would say, or exclusively Republican. So we didn't want our event to to, to be, uh, you know, heavily Democratic or or Republican for that reason. Um, but to really, you know, showcase how many different entities, uh, you know, work to improve public schools, uh, why public schools are so valuable to provide some opportunities for folks to go uh, to the floor uh, of the House of Representatives or the Senate and talk about public schools in a positive way. And so it was it was done, um, you know, as, as our first effort, um, I would say, uh, just to just uh, just to generate some some positive momentum um, more on the public relations and communication side than anything else. And I think it was effective. People liked it. And so now that we've had one go at it, we're doing it again this year, but it's going to be a lot, I think, more sophisticated and structured. Uh, we're going to have a lot more entities outside the education community participate. We're going to have faith leaders participating. We'll have disability groups and civil rights organizations participating. We'll hopefully have some members of the business community participating. Um, and we, we're, we're going to have, uh, again, great uh, sponsors on the House and Senate side, bipartisan sponsorship of this week, um, do some more events on Capitol Hill. But more than that, really try and, and now get the, the, the field involved, get, get teachers, superintendents, principals, uh, students, uh, you know, parents, of course, uh, also involved in, in the work that we're doing. So broaden it so it's not just an event happening on Capitol Hill, but an event happening around the country. Um, and I'm really thrilled that the Learning First Alliance, which is a, a coalition of, of, I think, the major education groups in town, um, which ASA has been a part of for a long time, is going to be leading some of this effort, uh, since it really does fall more at this point under the communications PR space. And that's not my area of expertise, but certainly we will um, be making sure that this is an opportunity for superintendents and others to, to to make contact with their members of Congress and invite them to join us in, in, in this effort of celebrating all the good things happening in public schools and raising up public schools in, in, uh, while they're while they during this week um, while they're in town. And um, I think it should be a really um, wonderful, positive way of of connecting with with members of Congress uh, for our members because it's not always easy to do that these days to find positive ways of connecting uh, but this is this is definitely one of them as well as uh, introducing uh, you know uh, new members of Congress of which there are so many this year to the concept of, of public schools week and and inviting them since they don't probably have a lot of education background from the get-go um, to, to kind of join, join the bandwagon and, and, uh, and, and be part of this exciting event uh, as, as freshmen. And did you tell our listeners when Public Schools Week is this year? Oh, I probably did not. It's going to be <laughs> March 25th, uh, the week of March 25th. So if you have your Outlook calendar out or whatever you use, just mark it for that. And, and again, we'll be, doing, we'll be sending a lot of emails much uh, much sooner than that um, about how you can engage with your school board, with your with your your teachers, and um, and the ways in which, particularly using social media, um, that you can participate. 
I'm excited for it. I like to ramp up the drama around it and call it the second annual public schools week. But it's, <laughs> it's been really great to watch the, the growth on it. And I think one of the biggest things is rather than um, the more ad hoc approach that you get when it first starts, which it worked really well last year, but having a group like Learning First Alliance take it over and having each of the member groups of that coalition take on explicit roles really does diversify not only the number of ways that the campaign can make contact, but the, like, the impact of that. So I'm super excited. Now, that's a great transition because we've talked a lot about what happened, what did you like, how do we do things, but I think people are here because they want to know what the heck to expect this Congress. So <laughs> this is the 116th Congress. It is the second half of President Trump's first term, and we have two years. Now, I think one of the first pro tips to observe here is that while it's a two-year Congress, we probably only have about a year to get something substantive done because then all of a sudden it will be an election year. So we're really just talking about the first half of Congress. And before I even turn it over to you for the specific question about what is it that you're excited about, I want to talk a little bit about something I observe every two years. And so I travel a lot and I'm not able to be on the Hill as much either because I'm out of town or because the issues that I lobby on aren't moving. That two-year clock, I find, is a super convenient reset. Every two years, it's a new Congress. Every two years, all the bills that didn't pass either die or have to be reintroduced. Every two years, there's a whole new group of fresh people, a little bit of fresh meat, people to get in there. If AASA can be in there first to talk about federal policy that strengthens public education, if we can demonstrate that we have the backing of the superintendents we represent and that we're able to talk about both sides of the issues and always tell you what we prefer, I find it is a huge, hugely awesome advantage to helping just catch up on what might have been a weakness in the previous Congress or build on what would have worked. So that's always the number one thing that I'm most excited about. And then showing my appropriations hat, like each, I'm super excited, even though it's an awful reality, about the funding cliff fight that we face. So this should be the last year where we need to see a cap increase because the caps that were put into place that have driven a lot of the talk about shutdowns or funding cliffs goes all the way back to 2011, but this should be the last year. So that's one of the things I'm excited about. So apart from that process of restarting every two years in the funding cliff, Sasha, what are you most excited about for this 116th Congress? Uh, I think it's going to be a busier year in some ways, uh, but uh, also I think a less productive year um, because with a larger majority of Republicans in the Senate and a Democratic-controlled House, I expect, and I think that's realistic to expect, a lot of gridlock. Um, and the House, you know, as usual, are, will try to pass a lot more bills that won't go anywhere in the Senate. And there are going to be folks in both chambers who will try to act as deal makers and bridge the policy divide. And sometimes they might be successful. But on the whole, I think we'll be weighing in as an organization on, on many more pieces of education-related legislation than in the past two Congresses, by virtue of the fact that the House will be moving many more pieces of legislation. Um, that's education centric, but whether any of them will become laws totally up in the air. And at times, I think it will feel. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm excited about this part, but I think at times it'll feel like, um, you know, being a hamster in the wheel because 
you're just going to go through the motions of advocating for or against legislation that will get a vote in the House, perhaps even on the House floor, but won't get a vote uh, in the Senate. And while some folks may prefer to just wait for things to move on Senate side, you know, ASA traditionally does not take that approach. We always, for better or worse, weigh in on anything that touches children in the K-12 environment and state whatever our position is, popular or unpopular on policy matters. And that means it's going to be a really busy year. Um, hmm. uh, and we'll definitely have some, I think, some new issues to, to talk about, um, as well as the traditional stuff that we always do, like IDEA funding and um, and funding writ large, as well as, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the traditional uh, topics that we work on. But um, luckily, I think 2020 is looming. And then, as you said, things will definitely slow down as the presidential cycle clicks in. I think we have a couple of months uh, in 2020 to do stuff. Um, but it's probably by, by April, really, it's going to be it's going to be over um, that they won't tr probably try to do anything very substantive after that point. Um, so so uh, that's that's kind of what I'm I'm I don't know if it's excitement is the right word, or just anticipating uh, for this year. Well, and you talk about being the hamster on the wheel and talking how we engage in every bill, whether we know it's going to get over the finish line or not. It goes back to this mindset of if you're not at the table, you might be on it. And you talked in the previous item about being more mindful of all the background feelings. And there's a lot of those. And sometimes you're able to know that they're going on. And sometimes the best you could do is be prepared to respond to a background feeling. But I think that will definitely be a big part of a Congress that leads into a presidential election year. Now, something we can dig in a little bit deeper is this concept of the hamster on the wheel. It's the difference or the distinction between an item that will get attention and an item that will get traction, or the difference between activity and actual productivity. So something that's moving versus something that'll get over the finish line. The obvious question here is what are some policies that you will think could get attention but no traction in 2019? And one of our best examples of that is always our number one legislative priority our proposal, which includes legislation to fully fund IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Education Act. I see no way in which Congress will finally fully fund IDEA. I would love to be wrong, but they have yet to do it. I think that's a good example of a bill that will get attention but no traction. And one that could possibly get over the finish line. I'll talk to you on that one to open up the conversation about what might actually get over the finish line and what some of those politics might look like. If I had to pick a big bill uh, to move, uh, I, my money would be on um, the higher education reauthorization getting done, really because Senator Alexander, who is the chairman of the Senate Health Committee, which involves education, uh, and who's retiring in 2020, I think wants one more big win. And his love for higher ed is, is really chief among all his other priorities. Um, and when I look at how liberal, in many ways, the Perkins bill was that he worked on this past Congress, I think he can move a center of right higher ed bill on the Senate side and get to a conference with the House, kind of um, a little bit different than what happened with S, where we had a, um, a center of right bill on the House side and, and more of a left bill on the Senate side. It would be the opposite. But you know, there are so many challenges politically uh, uh, to, to doing this, uh, but I, I, I'm, I mean, he is just a phenomenal deal maker. Um, 
and obviously a very respected leader in the Senate. And I, I think I put my money on if he really wants to do this um, and move forward and the Democrats can move a bill uh, like Republicans have in the past, just with their own support, that we could at least get to a conference situation um, where, where we have two bills, a House bill and a Senate bill um, that can be negotiated. Uh, but, um, you know, of course, the administration has the ability to mess things up and make that impossible uh, <laughs> if they start to intrude. And, and they're already intruding in a variety of ways um, in the higher education world. In fact, you know, generally, most folks think that the, the DeVos administration has been far more engaged and active in the higher education space than in the K-12 space, which may um, come as a shock to folks who are in the K-12 space who think that she's been very involved in, in the K-12 space. But um, really, it doesn't, it doesn't even compare to how engaged they've been on the, on the, on the higher ed side. So um, if that continues, that could really be difficult. Um, I guess other things, other big things uh, that could move, uh, maybe student data privacy. Uh, goodness knows it's really overdue. Um, I think uh, in terms of bills, I don't see getting across the finish line, but certainly taking up a lot of time. I would say uh, bills that address um, uh, the civil rights of students in education, whether that's bills related to school discipline, bills related to school safety and, and, and school discipline, whether that's uh, uh, a bill that would focus uh, on uh, school resource officers or would focus on mental health in schools or would focus on, um, you know, uh, exclusion and restraint, which is not a discipline practice, certainly, but certainly something that uh, I think a lot of the disability groups are, are very interested in seeing move this Congress. Um, so, uh, you know, there will be definitely conversations happening on both sides about some of the civil rights issues um, uh, in education that I think the civil rights community is desperate to, to try to have Congress tackle since the administration, in their view, has, has undermined civil rights for kids. And so they're looking for a legislative solution to that. Um, but whether or not that, that uh, whether I would classify that as, as a big bill or whether I think that'll actually get signed by President Trump is, is a totally separate question. What do you think, Noel? I think we work for the same organization with the same Congress because all I would say is ditto. I, I think the only <laughs> value I have, the value add I have for this question is you talked about the substance and I think some of the politics in this arena matter. And I think that was probably the most naive way I could say that sentence. The politics around this will absolutely matter. And I think one of the biggest pieces for this next Congress is to keep in mind that Lamar Alexander, as chairman of the Senate Health Committee, has both announced that he won't be running for re-election and is term limited. So this is his final last, this is his swan song term as chairman. And I think there is a softly spoken but basically un understood expectation that there should be a victory lap for the chairman in this Congress, and that should mean a bill over the finish line. And I think it's higher ed, and if higher ed gets derailed, which is possible, perhaps driven by what the department has done around the Title IX regulations, I, I think you see them pivot to a smaller bill, something like a student data and privacy. Now, we have no way of predicting that. If we were able to predict with certainty what Congress would do, I think neither you nor I would still work at AASA, <laughs> but I, I think that's our read. And we're there. We'll be ready to engage on any effort. We've been engaged with higher ed since it was last reauthorized in 2008. 
who was super pleased in the legislative agenda conversation with the executive committee last week to see them actually expand the scope of our engagement in higher education act. So for our listeners, historically, AASA's engagement in the higher education act has been limited to Title II and Title IV of HEA. So Title II is about teacher preparation. Title IV is where the teacher loan forgiveness programs are. So the specifics about how a teacher is prepared and then the specifics about how the federal government can help teachers afford their certificate. Of notable addition to last week's legislative agenda proposal is this idea that we will engage on explicit programs within the HEA, including TRIO and Gear Up, which are programs designed to help ensure that first-generation college-going or disadvantaged populations attending college not only make it to college, but are able to make it through college. And I thought that was a super value add to the legislative agenda. I think it speaks very closely to what they focus on at the K-12 level. They're taking the effort to ensure their students are college ready. And this effort just ensures that once those kids get to college, they can make it through college. And I think it speaks to a lot of the work that our boss leads. Dan Dominich leads the group where AASA meets with the American Association of Community College this effort to talk about transition and readiness and can we do dual enrollment or concurrent enrollment? What can we do to not only raise the number of students getting to college and considering two and four year pathways, but also getting all the way through it. So I'm super pumped to see all of that. And I don't know how we got from what do you expect in the 116th to talking about our coalition with the community colleges, but somehow we did it. And I think all of that warrants something to keep an eye on in 2016. So some of the, I think we only have two real remaining questions, and we've kind of touched on all of them. But I'm going to paraphrase them here for you to touch on anything you want to add. Also, so our listeners know what we might have asked that was folded into previous questions. So is there any way by which Trump or DeVos could make a change or move that wouldn't cause immediate recoil in the education community? I think Betsy DeVos has more of this effect than necessarily President Trump, I think. Betsy DeVos's confirmation was so brutal that it's really hard for her to do anything that doesn't immediately cause a recoil and unify everyone, if in nothing else, in opposition to anything she proposes for education. So I'd be really fascinated to see if you think there's any way that President Trump or Secretary DeVos could propose a policy that wouldn't get immediate recoil. Going to go ahead and take the infrastructure option off the table, though. Oh, okay. Think, that was my, my, my vote for infrastructure. I, okay. I think that is the easiest <laughs> one. But, and I think the bigger issue is it'll be to pay for. Um, and if, if anything, I, I think that's absolutely one of the easiest things for them to do. But we do have to keep in mind that President Trump, once he was voted in as president, while he was candidate, he included schools in his infrastructure debate. But starting with last year's State of the Union, schools have been devoid of any of his references. Now, luckily, both the House and Senate bills include language to fund schools in an infrastructure package. But I just don't see them coming up with funding. I don't see them deficit financing an infrastructure package the way they would deficit finance a tax bill if only because they don't want to deficit finance and also because we don't have a Republican Congress anymore. So I think that changes all of that. But do you see anything else outside of infrastructure that might be able to get some traction without immediate recoil? No, I, I really don't. I think, I mean, again, the education community is diverse too. And, and so to have, uh, there's certainly things they could do that we would support, um, uh, you know, but 
I would say specifically in the regulatory space, if they could, that there's, there's some regulations, I'm thinking in special education specifically, that um, are really unhelpful and are worthy of reconsideration by any administration, but this administration um, may be more inclined to, to look at some of them. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, 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 that what, what we would want it was in line with necessarily what the education community as a whole would want. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, again, being a, a, a nonpartisan organization, we have the ability to, um, to encourage the department and have conversations with them to, to do different things uh, within, their, within their grasp. Um, and, uh, and, and there are those in the education community that just have no relationship right now with the, the administration and uh, have a knee-jerk reaction to anything that they do, um, regardless of the context, I think, um, uh, as being bad. Um, that's, that's not who we are. You know, we'll, we'll take each position as, as we see it. Um, each issue as we see it. So, you know, we're going to, we're continuing to talk with them and meet with them and, and work with them in a collaborative way to the extent that we can. Um, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that there's no room for improvement. Um, they, I think they also are under pressure. They also understand that the cycle's coming up and they've told me explicitly, you know, we have really a year to, to do, to do some stuff here. Um, and after they're, they're, they're kind of assuming that by next January, they'll be timed out as well. Um, so we'll see what happens, I guess, is, is my answer. But I think that, uh, you know, a slam dunk thing like infrastructure it would be the only concept I could see that the DeVos and, and Trump administration could move that, that wouldn't really cause uh, some, some, like you said, recoil in the education community. Well, I would love to see that come true. If we could get a couple hundred million for shovel-ready projects for schools, I know that they would gobble that money up faster than it could probably be made available. But it would be huge. Uh, it would be fantastic if we could see that. So we've reached the end of all the questions I wanted to ask you, Sasha. Is there anything else you wanted to pose or discuss with our listeners who have stuck with us throughout all of the inaugural first mm-hmm. ever public education policy pep <laughs> talk podcast? Uh, no, just keep advocating, keep <laughs> paying attention, keep following us on Twitter, keep looking at the blog. Keep reading the the updates. You know, we have the legislative core, which is our like weekly digest. That's really just a couple of paragraphs. We have our monthly um, advocate, uh, which is uh, advocacy update, which is much more detailed about a, a lot of different issues. So if you haven't been paying attention, sometimes that's, that's a good one to get. You'll get everything at once, uh, including any calls to action that we may have. But I, it's going to be a busy year. We're going to be asking folks to to weigh in. Uh, on things that, that are moving in the House for sure. I don't think it'll be much on the Senate side, but definitely on the House side. So figure out who your member of Congress is in the House, who your representative is. Uh, get to know them a little bit if you can. And if not, you know, this is an opportunity this year, given how, how education-centric uh, I think things will be in the House side, um, to build some strong relationships that will only pay off hopefully in the future as, as you continue to advocate and as we continue to advocate for you. Uh, that was brilliant. That sounded like a commercial for AAA. <laughs> so thank you. Sasha, thank you for letting us record this podcast today in of light course. of all the snow. I appreciate your participation. Thank you listeners for sticking with us through this. You can follow Sasha on Twitter at S Podelsky or S 
P-U-D-E-L-S-K-I. And we're always available on email if you have any questions or need additional information to support your AASA advocacy needs. Thank you very much for joining us today, and we look forward to talking with you again in the future. Bye. Bye.